the Christian message is we should only be following Jesus, right? There is only one Lord. To make anything else the Lord of your life is to become an idolater. And so this is why I think theology matters. It distinguishes true from false religion. It distinguishes true piety from idolatry. It distinguishes disciples of other people from disciples of Jesus Christ. So I think we're all disciples. So that's not the problem. The question is, who are we following? It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. In our previous episode, we started a conversation with theologian and author Kevin Van Hooser. Whenever I interview people who are experts in subjects, I want to know how they got interested in it in the first place. And for him, he was quite young. His parents sent him to Sunday school, and he came back with questions about God that planted a seed in his parents' heart that led them to Jesus. That's not a completely unique story. I've actually heard this before from other people, how God used their children to reach them. What is remarkable to me is how old he was. He was only three years old. Suffice to say, God has had his hand on his life. And as he's grown, you can see God leading him, transforming him, and enabling him to serve his church around the world. This is a man with his finger on the pulse of Christianity. And in our last episode, I mentioned how he shared with us what he thinks some of the most significant challenges for the church today are. He talks about biblical and cultural illiteracy. He shared with us how often well-meaning Bible-believing Christians are actually far more secular than we may realize. Well, that launched us into an important discussion on what the Bible is. If you haven't listened to that episode, press pause right now and go back and listen to that one first, because we are starting this episode off exactly, and I mean exactly, where we left off discussing the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible isn't just some theoretical thing for theologians. It it really does matter. And you might say, oh, of course, we all know the purpose of the Bible, right? We we see it in scripture that it's, it's profitable for preaching and teaching and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes, yes, we, we all agree with that. But really, how does it shape us? How are we to help people to understand it? Is it just this document with all these propositions in it? We need to learn all these facts about who God is. Or is it an instruction manual showing us how to live on earth? Or maybe it's like a drama script that helps us to know how to play our part on the stage of the world. This is where Van Hooser comes in because he shows us that these discussions matter to every single one of us, not just pastors, not just leaders, but for them supremely so because it actually shapes what they're doing and what they communicate to everyone else within the church. It matters to them. Theology does matter 
hugely. It's not just for academics. It's not just for those who are pastors, those who are scholars. We all do theology because theology really is trying to understand what God wants for us in the middle of the world and and how he wants us to live. That's it. And that affects every single one of us as husbands and wives and as and women, as married, as singles, in our workplaces, as students. I mean, everywhere. It affects every single part of who we are. So we need to be able to understand that, to understand the purpose of the Bible, especially today as we see some people just jettisoning the Bible left and right, saying all these things about it. And here's, here's the deal. The Bible is the most controversial book that's ever been written. And no matter what scholars may say, no matter what criticisms may come, it will still stand the test of time because there have been those who have come before and they still have not been able to show that the Bible is not worth trusting, not at all. Because when you probe down deep, you find that God has given us the word of God to show us who Jesus is, to show us who he is, to show what his purposes and plans are for the world. And that's why I'm so excited to speak with Kevin Van Hooser. But before we get to that, we have some exciting announcements for you. Number one, we are going to two episodes per week. So no longer do you have to wait for the second part of the conversation to drop. It will now be only a matter of days. That's the first thing. Number two, we need your financial support. Okay, we need it. So go online to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. We are looking for 10 new watering partners to support us at $10 a month. That's two trips to Starbucks. We need your help because God is using this and growing this ministry. And we know that we can't do it by ourselves. We need you to be able to help us so that we can help water faith around the world. We keep hearing testimonies of pastors who are so grateful for this show, for those influencers, those leaders in churches and in ministries that are delighting in the content that God has brought before them to help them so that they might be able to water their world. And we know that that's what you are. You are a watering warrior. So step up, go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, and you will be glad to know that you are bringing water to the desert places of our culture today, enabling people to truly taste of the water of life. Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with my friend, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Happy listening. Talk about the Bible as a document. It's the word of God. It's infallible. We we look to it, but you see it as a performance script. And again, I don't want to put words in your mouth and I'm going to mislabel something and I know you're going to correct it, but tell us a bit about how you see the word and how we are to perform it, if you will. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. You know, we started off this conversation by my telling you about going to Sunday school and coming back with questions about the Bible to my mother. And she had to read it at three years old, by the way, I, yeah. what were the questions you asked as a oh, three-year-old? Well, look, three-year-olds ask really difficult questions. Like how That's many true. eyes does God have? <laughs> <laughs> so um, all that to say is I, I have thought for years that if I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I've got to be biblical, but there are so many followers of Jesus. And it just raised the question to my mind, what does it mean to be biblical? And that's the question, by the way, that really kind of catapulted me into doing doctoral studies. I just didn't have a satisfactory answer to that question. What does it mean to be biblical? So 
I think views of scripture are really important. If we don't know what the Bible is, we, we won't know how to use it rightly. And I've been influenced by C.S. Lewis, who says, you know, the first rule of interpretation is you have to know what kind of thing you're interpreting or dealing with. And I think he would say that applies to everything from corkscrews to cathedrals, as well as the biblical canon. <laughs> and in the canon, of course, we have many types of things, right? We have many kinds of literature. And so as a systematic theologian, I think I've tried very hard to do justice to the many forms of literature in the Bible and not treat it as if it were a geometry textbook, you know, simply with axioms, simply with principles, or even a handbook of information, you know, simply with bits of data that I have to somehow collect and make sense of. There are theologians who approach the Bible as, you know, a book of information that has to be collected and arranged properly. There's a place for that, to be sure, but I think the Bible is more than just a handbook of information or even a, a handbook of moral principles. So my starting point is I, I see the Bible as human discourse and divine discourse. It's ultimately God's word. It's more than information. That term discourse is key. Discourse, uh, it has to do with the use of words. I define discourse as, and this is what I think the Bible is, something somebody says to someone in some way for some purpose. And so to be biblical, I've got to do justice to every one of those phrases. Who's saying something? What are they saying? How are they saying it? For what purpose are they saying it? I have those questions in mind every time I read scripture. And here's the other thing that I've discovered. Simply having a high view of scripture or a so-called high view of scripture does not guarantee right interpretation. When I realized that, that was an aha moment for me. You know, no matter how high, no matter how many eyes I use to describe scripture, infallible, inspired, inerrant, no matter how many eyes, you know, it, that wasn't, that doesn't guarantee that I will read it rightly. And so that made me go back to the drawing board. So all that to say is first we have to decide what scripture is. Then we are in a better position to begin responding to it. So now I'm getting to your question. <laughs> uh, no, this is great. As, yeah, as, as to what the Bible is. So I've said it's, it's ultimately God's speech to his people about something, let's call it the gospel, uh, for some purpose, and let's call it communion. I think the Bible is God's speech to God's people, and it's about something, right? It's about what God is doing to create a people. I think the whole Bible is about God's purpose to, to uh, have this human creature in his image, to have this creature form a people, a holy nation, a treasured possession. And there's all sorts of references throughout scripture to this purpose. But I think ultimately, the Bible is about God's building project. He wants to build a living temple, a people to be his dwelling place on earth. 
That's amazing. That's what the story's about. But that means it's not about morality in the first instance. It's not simply about universal truth. It's a story. And Jesus Christ is at the center of the story. And what we know about Jesus is that he is God's word, God's discourse, as it were, but God's discourse made flesh. And so the reason I like the idea of drama is that drama is story made flesh, right? That's what a drama is. It's, it's bodies acting out some story. And I do think that's what the Bible is about. Jesus' body is really important, the incarnation. And he acts out the climax of this story, right? In Christ and on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension and so on, he is creating this people that has always been God's intention. So this is very dramatic. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I see myself as caught up in something incredibly dramatic. It's the story, well, it's the ultimate wedding story, the wedding of heaven and earth. How is that going to happen? What do I have to do to be part of that? And so, so the, every part of the Bible, I would argue, has to do in some way, direct or indirect, with that ultimate aim. So I see the Bible as a, well, it's useful to use many metaphors. I use the metaphor of the map. The Bible itself uses the metaphor of the lamp, a light unto our path. But by and large, I see it as direction for Christians to walk in a way that makes them children of light and in a way that glorifies God and in a way that allows us to be the body of Christ on earth. So I see the Bible as a, as a kind of play script that is a, you know, a script for a theatrical play. It's interesting. I mean, it works on different levels. It tells us what God has already done in the past, in Israel, in Christ. It tells us what God is doing now in us through the church. It tells us what God will do at the end of time to consummate his building project. And so in all these tenses and all these forms, the Bible is filling out for us this picture of this well, we could call it a creation project. It's the story of God creating a people for himself to be his representatives here on earth. And the church is caught up in this story. So it's a very dynamic view. I see the Bible as giving us instruction, yes, but it's not just theoretical instruction. It's very practical instruction, how to be the people of God in this place, in this time, in this situation. You know, it's very dramatic. And again, by dramatic, I mean it requires our speech and action in response to God's speech and action. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. 
Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. When you first introduced this concept and I first read about it in the drama of doctrine, I mean, I'm not a theologian in the sense that you are. I'm more that everyday theologian that you wrote about. But this idea of it not just being this, as I as I mentioned in the pre-show walkthrough, a divine book of whack-a-mole where you just whack people for being sinners and hit them over the head. And I've been in places where I've seen that, where the Bible was seen as the word of God. It was it was talked about as the word of God, but practically it was used as a means to control rather than helping people understand how to live out the divine drama of redemption on the stage of the world so that the world might see the main player who's Jesus. And, and in seeing that, it's, it's so revolutionary because then you realize you're playing a part. You've been invited into this process and it's not that you are passive in that God is the main player, but he invites you. You didn't invite yourself. He invites you onto that platform to show who he is through your life, through your action. And again, pointing back to Jesus. That's why I think it's, it's genius. It's, it's just awesome. Pascal, and, and knowing that, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, Pascal said that God has given human beings the gift of freedom, which he calls the dignity of causality. And I like to think that God has given us the dignity of theatricality. That is the ability, to, <laughs> the ability to, to say things and do things on the stage of the world that actually make a difference, right? There, why, why get up out of bed in the morning if what we say and do won't make a difference? But it does. And to me, you know, the Christian life is very urgent because I meet people. <laughs> And every time I meet someone, that's, that's dramatic, right? What am I going to say? What are they going to say back? How can I, in this situation, embody the mind and heart of Christ? Taking your view and, and how do we, taking this embodiment idea, how does this differ from how we have, or, and I don't want to say how we have, Typically in the West, let's say North America, and it varies on region and people, and there's all these varieties there, but there is kind of a median that people adhere to when they talk about the Bible. Your view, though, takes it into a different realm in that it becomes performative. It's, again, not passive, but it's active. It invites people to be participants in it. How has this differed? historically from what we've seen being worked out in our Bible believing churches here in the United States? It's a big question. I know yeah, probably well, one, a lot of it's caveats. A, it's a big question and I, I won't be able to do it justice because I'm going to have to generalize and yes. uh, you know, I'm on dangerous ground. It's like thin ice when you generalize because there's exceptions to the rule. Well, a counter example is like a crack in the ice, right? So I'm yeah. going to, but in general, and I don't say this at, at all times and places. I think the early church was very involved in, you know, the martyrs. So let me just back up. 
there have been martyrs and the martyrs are the ultimate actors not least because in their the way they act is by suffering for their faith that's the ultimate kind of act right to suffer for your witness but martyr means witness and the early church was very concerned that their lives their communities witness to the reality of the gospel that's what i care about what's happened i think more recently is that the emphasis has been put on believing right things and faith has been reduced to belief and i know there are reasons for this right we don't want to get into the idea where we're justified by our works so let me say up front that's a possible danger of overemphasizing a dramatic model that you know the emphasis is on what you do what you say and that can generate pride and so on i don't want to support any of that so i want i want to flag it as a possible weakness of the model but on the other hand i don't think that believism the idea that being a christian is simply believing the right things that's not biblical that's my main problem with it right the demons believe but tremble says james so believism is not enough and i think when Christians confess Christ, we have to do more than believe intellectually something. We have to believe in the sense that this is going to make a difference in our lives, right? To believe that Jesus is Lord, if you're really believing that, you have to act as if Jesus as Lord. You have to respond to him as Lord. And so that's why we do have, again, in James, you know, faith without some kind of work, faith without some kind of active response that's just uh that's just on paper that's just theoretical faith real faith implies discipleship and discipleship requires walking which is a the biblical code word as it were for conduct and so you can't be a armchair disciple okay you you can't be a theoretical disciple but i'm afraid that's what believism uh, you know, promotes the idea that if to be a Christian means you believe this set of things, that's not, that's not going to generate genuine disciples. To be honest, I think the real problem today is that a picture holds many people captive. A picture of the Christian as one who believes certain things or votes in a certain way, right? And in other words, it's the positions you hold. It's not what you do. It's the positions that you hold. Now, look, I'm a systematic theologian. I care about the positions, but it's not at the end of the day about the positions. It's about the effect of these positions on our life. So I, I do think that is the problem. I may be wrong about this, but there's this picture in people's minds of a Christianity without discipleship. And to my mind, that's a contradiction in terms. What does a disciple look like to you? I mean, you've written a book on it, Hearers and Doers, where you, you get into that. And that's what I think you're trying to bring out. It's not just that the intellectual ascent, it's in the action and it's transformative and that it influences your behavior, the whole orthodoxy, orthopraxy, that, that the similar kind of concept. What then does disciple or what are we missing in our discipleship today in many of our churches? Yeah, so... I don't think discipleship is missing per se. I think it's misdirected. That is, I would argue 
that everybody, Christian or not, is a disciple of something or someone. There are disciples in cults, but there are also disciples of ideologies. There are probably disciples of political parties, right? A disciple is someone who's following a particular way of life, and we're all disciples of something. The Christian message is we should only be following Jesus, right? There is only one Lord. To make anything else the Lord of your life is to become an idolater. And so this is why I think theology matters. It distinguishes true from false religion. It distinguishes true piety from idolatry. It distinguishes disciples of other people from disciples of Jesus Christ. So I think we're all disciples. So that's not the problem. The question is, who are we following? I could say the same thing about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is always happening. Question is, who's forming our spirits and what form do our spirits take? That's the real issue. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you, baby. Don't let it rain on your spark. Keep it close to your heart. All of the pressure's gonna drive you crazy. Cause you rise to the madness. In the morning, it's all gonna vanish. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you. As you said, and there's the idea of liturgy and counter liturgy. I mean, James James Smith has talked about this, where we are all being formed, and the world is evangelizing us, and it's evangelizing our children. As you've mentioned, we are all being formed and shaped in one way, and we see that even within the church. As you mentioned, almost secular viewpoints, I would say, uh, have permeated the church and shaped the pastoral position. I want to switch gears here for a little bit. I know you've written a lot about the pastor as theologian or the pastor theologian. And it's become, I think, more necessary than ever, simply because I was speaking with a a major search firm who who helps churches get pastors. These are churches that are mega churches. And they said that 50% of their church hires now have no theological education whatsoever. And yeah, which is especially to someone who works at a seminary and specializes in that, that has to be a horrifying and terrifying thought. And and I've seen the counter view. We need to recover this idea of pastor as theologian. Now people hear that and they think, well, I want to be able to understand the pastor and I hear theologian and I think they're talking about things that just don't apply to me. I don't need all that. How do you respond to them to help them to see the, the truth or what a, a pastor theologian is, is actually for their benefit and their good. Yeah, well, you're in the sweet spot now, right? Because I've given my life to higher theological education. But what's sobering these days is that I'm more and more aware, as we all are, that we have to make an apology for higher theological education. Yes, um, in other words, we actually have to preach to the choir <laughs> that mm-hmm. theology matters. And I do think there's a price to pay when pastors don't know basic Christian doctrines. You know, Calvin opens up his institutes by saying the sum of Christian wisdom consists in the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God. But in my view, the church is flirting with ignorance in both those areas. By knowledge, yeah, by knowledge of self, I'm talking about anthropology, right? And what are the questions that people are asking today? 
Who are we? What are we? How can we flourish? This is why we need doctrine. We need a theological anthropology to answer these questions. What does the good life look like? There's so many answers out there. Pastors need to understand how doctrine can help them address these central questions. So that's the knowledge of self. As to knowledge of God, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're, not, you're not necessarily born with it. Calvin says we have a sense of the divine, but that's not quite the same thing as knowing God. And again, in our culture, there are images of God that uh, have influenced the church, right? God's, God's in the business of forgiveness, you know, and, and that, so we've lost, I think, we've lost the holiness of God today. Mm -hmm. We have a very squishy understanding of God's love not great and glorious. It's what you'd expect. It's kind of sentimental. Mm. And that generates problems. So I think we need pastors who are theologians, because as I said a while back, the project that the Bible is all about is God's project of forming a people for himself. This is a very theological project, right? Mm -hmm. And so the pastor isn't simply like other leaders pastor isn't simply a CEO or a manager or a therapist or a comedian, <laughs> none of those things. You know, you, you don't want to ex exchange the, the true birthright of a pastor for those thin imitations. Mm. And so I think the birthright of a pastor is the theological one. The vocation is theological. It's to minister the word of God to the people of God. I said God twice. <laughs> and uh, that's what I mean by theological, right? And, and the purpose of ministering the word of God to the people of God is to make them godly. That's three mm. times. So this is a very theological vocation. You know, I, I think there's a, there's a couple problems here. We have pictures of pastors and pictures of theologians that are moving in different directions. Mm -hmm. When people hear the word theologian these days, I think they often imagine an academic, mm -hmm. probably an out-of-touch academic, <laughs> or someone who's angry about, you know, people who don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and that all, all of these pictures, of course, are true in some respect. There are all these images. You know, the, the, the point about theology is it's just not popular in the West. It's, it's been driven out of the university in, in North America because there's no place for an academic study called theology in a secular university. So what we have instead, we have religious studies. Mm. And religious studies, to my mind, are not necessarily about God at all. They're the study of human behavior. The study of humans when they're being religious. Mm. <laughs> so there's it's complex, but the whole idea of theology in North America, you know, there, there's some confusion about it. And when pastors think about it, I think they often think of something that's divisive. And the one thing you don't want to do these days as a pastor is be more divisive. So let's not talk about doctrine because doctrines divide. Again. I get it, and I think some of there's some truth in all of this, 
But the the real truth, the deeper truth, is something more glorious. You know, the pastor mm -hmm. is called to be a theologian. And again, we aren't born this way. It does take some training and some education, at least some mentoring. And I think the church isn't well served when we keep these two ideas, pastors and theologians, in separate compartments. How do we help change that? I think it starts with the picture of pastor and the picture of theologian. In other words, back to the imagination. Yeah. We have to chip away at the imagination. And I think we need to have a bigger picture of what pastors are there for. You know, they aren't just going through the motions. They aren't just having to do duties. The, the real call of a pastor is to, is to minister God's word, the word of life and truth and healing. And I, I like to call pastors public theologians, not simply because they're doing theology in public, which is a scary thought, but yes, mm -hmm. but because they're doing theology with people. Public mm -hmm. means people. They're doing theology with people, for the people, among the people of God. And they're doing it to build up people into Christ, the full measure of maturity in Christ. And so I think that's a wonderful vocation, right? To build up the people of God into godliness by ministering the word of God and encouraging them to grow up into Christ, God's word made flesh. Would you hold me if I told you we can just run away? So come, my darling. Let me help you, we can follow the sun and leave the rain for somebody else. Let's help ourselves and leave our troubles upon the shelf. And don't you worry, we're gonna find all we need in our sunset. This is just an amazing conversation for me. To, to be able to think and dialogue about these things is just so refreshing. As we were talking in the, the, the pre-show walkthrough, you mentioned you're preparing some things for going to or Chinese Christians. And you said it's very, very different than, than here. But as you interact with global leaders, what is it that you think we can learn from our global brothers and sisters in the West? Any thought Sorry. on that? Wait, wait, did you say it the right way? What can we learn from our global? Sorry, what can we learn? What can we learn from our our global bro brothers and sisters around the world that we can apply in the West? Right, that's right. what I meant. Okay, got it, got it. That's what I thought you were asking. Okay, um, I'm not. I'm not the theologian you are, sir. So yeah. <laughs> I have to watch my wording as well. But go ahead. So, you know, if you had asked me that, well, maybe 20 years ago, I think you would have been met with a deafening silence because I didn't know. It just wasn't on my radar. And let's see, did I say 20 years ago? Maybe 30 years ago, because 20 years ago is when it did become on my radar in a big way. I was teaching at New College at the University of Edinburgh. And one of my colleagues there was a missiologist named Andrew Walls, a Scotsman. And part of our divinity faculty 
included this center called the Center for the Study of Christianity Christianity in the Non-Western World. And it drew in Africans in particular. But it was largely through getting to know Andrew Walls and his work that I came to see that missiology and the global church have a very important role to play in my systematic theology so that I can't see myself as simply Western. I'm At the very least, I want to be Catholic in the sense of universal. Mm-hmm. And that means I need to pay attention to the church down through the centuries, but also in other cultures. And the most important lesson I think I learned from Andrew Walls is this, that theology begins when you have to translate the gospel into another culture. You have to say what it means, and you have to find other terms and other categories and other images to help it take root. But he also taught me that no one culture is more Christian than another. And that means every culture has resources. I think the most astounding thing he said was that every time the gospel does enter a new culture, every time the faith has been transmitted from one people to another, he says the whole church and its understanding grows. This is the way we learn. It's as we understand how this people understand the gospel, that our understanding grows as well. So many of the doctrines that we have emerged out of that kind of cross-cultural transmission of the faith. I think even the doctrine of the Trinity, in a sense, emerged when Jewish Christians were trying to explain who Jesus was to Hellenistic Greek thinkers who had a different set of categories for thinking about God. But they made the right decision when they were doing this mission to the Greeks. They ended up saying, you know, Christ is of the same substance as the Father. He is the same essence as the Father, because there is only one God. I think, to some extent, the doctrine of the Trinity is a result of that early missionary effort to, Mm. you know, Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking Christians. And it happened with the doctrine of the Trinity. I think it happens with other doctrines as the gospel enters into different cultures. So I want to listen to how brothers and sisters in other cultures receive the gospel and how they uh, articulate the significance and uniqueness of Jesus in their categories. I'm open to that. You know, it's hard to listen into every conversation, mm-hmm. but that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. And I actually do have a kind of a front seat because I, I have the privilege of teaching doctoral students here at Trinity, many of whom come from different places in the global church. And yet, we're all together trying to read the same biblical passages and make sense of them. Mm. So, I, I just find that a very rich experience. I learn from them, and I hope they learn from me, but it, it's mutual. And I think this is how theology works. When people in different cultural situations are all trying to understand the import of God's word on their lives, their situations, their cultures. Mm. This is so good. 
I know we're are limited on our time today, and I, I wanted to to kind of finish off for those who are new to you in your work. Where would you recommend that they start getting familiar with your writings? Ah, uh, well, that's a tough one because my favorite book is the one I'm writing now. <laughs> <laughs> it always is, but uh, I think I think you know. In light of our discussion today, I'd, I'd probably recommend Hearers and Doers mm-hmm. because it is a book about how doctrine is useful for forming disciples. And it's a later book. It's one I wrote just a few years ago. And so it draws and refers to other themes that I've been working on over the years. I won't call it a summa. It's too small for that. <laughs> but it does kind of summarize some of the leading themes, you know, like, Maybe even a, a kind of a best hits kind of book. <laughs> As people though become familiar, I, I, one more of a personal question: when you when you finish, whenever that is, whenever God says you're done, what do you hope to have accomplished, or God has accomplished through your work? Yeah, excellent question, and one that I think about more often now than I did 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I think the idea that I will have passed on to another generation an enthusiasm for theology, a vision for how it should be done, and a desire for that generation to affect the next generation in a similar way. I, so I, it's, you know, it, it, it's, I put a lot of effort into books, but really the, the point of that is to form people. It's not just to have a trophy case of volumes. <laughs> that would be an empty victory if, if they weren't affecting people. So again, I've been very privileged to be in a place where I do have great students from all over the world. And you know, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. Well, I, I want to thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I know that we're just scratching the surface of many of the different themes that you've written on over the years. I do recommend it to many different people, whether it's drama of doctrine, here's a doers, is there meaning in this text? I mean, just so many of the books that you've you've written are so insightful and you think differently than most do. But I think your voice is one that is needed in, in the church today, simply because our culture is shifting over and over and over again. And it's it's more important than ever to understand the application or understand how to use the word of God, to understand our place in it, that story. I love how you said it, that social imaginary or that biblical imaginary as it is. But I want to thank you uh, for coming on Apollos Watered. Thanks for the conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Travis. <laughs> Can you just tell that I was totally drinking this in? I I didn't say a whole lot through the conversation. I just asked the question and let him go because there's so much important stuff to hear. To me, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser is what a theologian is supposed to be. I mean, he's passionate about understanding who God is and his purposes in the world. He's passionate about learning more and communicating it to those who communicate it. And he's also passionate about equipping leaders to serve Christ's church. The church isn't serving the academy. The academy is to serve the church. And I love his focus on that. I love his insights and I love his passion. And and let's be really honest here, brutally honest. 
he took us into some seriously deep waters. And I highly doubt that many of my audience, not to say that you're pushovers by any stretch of the imagination, but this is really deep stuff. I mean, it is because they are deep because God is deep. You know, we talk about this a lot. And unfortunately in our churches today, we are so surfacey as to make me sick. And I'm not saying everybody's got to be a theologian and talk over people's heads. No, but we have to understand that we're talking about who God is here. God is, when we're talking about the person of God, he doesn't fit into our categories. We have to fit into his categories. He is our creator. We are the creation. God is deep and his plan for us is deep and multifaceted. And I know people want to keep it simple, stupid, right? But sometimes we just have to marvel at how awesome and how big he really is. And the exciting, amazing thing is that you see it all in service to exactly what we talk about all the time, pursuing Christ's mission in all of life. That's what this whole conversation is about, to help us equip and show how we are to fulfill Christ's mission where God has us. What is the Bible all about? It's about God's building project. He wants to build a living temple, a people to be his dwelling place on earth and to reveal him to the world around him. That is us. That's you. That's me. And we are together called the church. The Bible is our script telling us what God has done, what he's doing and what he's going to do. And it's our job to be actors on the stage of the world. The Bible is the practical instruction on how to be the people of God in this place, at this cultural moment, at this time, and in this situation. I love that. I love it. I do. I love his statement that we can't be just armchair disciples. I'm so tired of that. We can critique and talk about stuff all day long, but I want us to be hearers and doers. We have to walk in the way of Jesus. We can't be Christians without being disciples. It's a contradiction in terms. There are a lot of warnings as well as encouragement in what Dr. Van Hooser had to say. I'm encouraged and convicted by the challenge that a pastor's role is not to be like other leaders, but to help make people more like Jesus. I'm excited by the thought that every time the gospel enters a new culture and the whole church and its understanding of who God is grows. That is super cool. And I want to be part of that. And I hope you do too. That's what we're all about. As Dr. Van Hooser quoted John Calvin, he said, the sum of Christians wisdom consists in the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God. But the church is flirting with ignorance in both these areas. That's why we have brought such a variety of guests to our show for you to help you. Why are we going to continue to do so? Because we want to water your faith so that you can water your world. You want more and we're going to do our best to give it to you. I would heavily encourage you to take a look at Dr. Van Hooser's books, especially Hearers and Doers or The Drama of Doctrine. I mean, he's got some deep stuff out there and don't think you're going to rush through it. You need to sit and chew on it. Just chew on it over and over again. Well, that's it for today's show, everyone. I want to thank you for listening and please share this episode and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen to. Do it. Do it now. You can say, here's what you do. Go online, whatever the platform is, you can find it. It says, write a review, put it in there and say, this is such a good show. I love this show and you need to listen to it too. You need to do something like that, okay? It helps other people find us. 
We need your help. We can't do this without you. We're in this together. And I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping us to water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the road.